Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Bridget Cleary, the last person burned alive in Ireland. We're going to begin with a nursery rhyme from South Tipperary where Bridget Cleary lived and died. It goes like this. Are you a witch or are you a fairy or are you the wife of Michael Cleary? Now while this sounds harmless, behind this rhyme is the brutal story of the life and death of Bridget Cleary, the wife of Michael Cleary. This episode of the show looks at Bridget Cleary's life. She was the last person burned alive in Ireland and hers is a story shrouded in superstition and mystery. By the 1890s, Irish communities formed major populations across the English-speaking world. In Australia, America and Canada, not to mention Britain, Millions who couldn't afford to return home never forgot the country of their birth and paid a keen interest to events back in Ireland. In a world without the internet, television or radio, the only source of information was newspapers. To soothe homesick feelings, emigrant trawled through columns, looking for stories and perhaps on the odd occasion a mention of a familiar place in their home county or parish. However, in April 1895, these emigrants found a story in newspapers across the world that was bewildering and disturbing. Papers from the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia to the New York Times in the USA carried details of a strange and unsettling murder that had taken place in Ireland. Nine people had supposedly been arrested for a brutal killing at a place many papers called Ballyvallis in County Tipperary. These early reports were scant in detail but still gruesome. The nine had supposedly roasted a woman called Bridget Cleary alive. Manny claimed she had suffered this horrific fate in an effort to make her admit she was a witch. Such a story seemed somewhat fanciful. Undoubtedly, many Irish emigrants who heard this were sceptical. Much international news in the English-speaking world came by way of English-based publications, 
which were frequently laced with the racism prevalent towards Irish people at the time. Surely this was no more than base rumour. Furthermore, emigrants who knew Tipperary well could immediately have pointed out one major inconsistency in the reports. There was no such place called Ballyvallis in County Tipperary. However, while it took several weeks for greater details to emerge, by early May there was no denying something dreadful had actually taken place in rural County Tipperary on a dark March night two months earlier. The newspapers by May carried detailed reports that made the case undeniable. It could no longer be dismissed as racist rumours. The non-existing location of Ballyvallis had been dropped from reports and replaced by Ballyvadley, which many undoubtedly knew was a townland not too far from the Tipperary town of Clonmel. These reports in May 1895 also contained a list of names of those who had been arrested. The main perpetrator of the crime was said to be Michael Clary, none other than the husband of Bridget, the woman who had died. However, one aspect still seemed scarcely credible. The reports still maintained that she had been burned as a witch. Could it really be true that on the eve of the 20th century, an age where science, learning and education marched forward, a woman had supposedly been burned for witchcraft in Ireland? When the exact details of the case emerged, it was obvious some of the reports had indeed been false. Bridget Cleary was not a witch, nor had she been suspected of being one. The truth behind her killing on March 15, 1895, was in fact far more disturbing than any medieval witch trial. Bridget Cleary, born Bridget Boland, was 26 years of age when she came to international attention after her death in 1895. The daughter of a poor labourer, Patrick Boland, she was an attractive woman who was described by contemporaries as good-looking, while one report said she was of middle height, perhaps brownish hair, blue eyes and regular features, a pretty woman. While Bridget was raised in rural County Tipperary, her home in Ballyvadley was neither remote nor isolated. While there were a few dozen people living in the small townland of Ballyvadley, the sizable settlement of Feathered was only four miles away, while Clamel, home to some 10,000 people, was only 15 miles away. For Bridget and her generation, they grew up in an Ireland that had been scarred by the horrors of the Great Famine in the late 1840s. While around one million had died, it had triggered mass emigration that had continued right throughout the 19th century. Indeed, it had been emigration rather than starvation that had affected Ballyvadley. In 1851, there had been 112 people living in the area, more or less what it had been prior to the famine. Within 50 years, the population had nearly halved, with only 59 people remaining, with most having left through emigration. However, despite the traumatic events of the famine and emigration that followed, Ballyvadley, and indeed wider Ireland in the 1890s, was not a society anchored in the past. Obviously, there were parts of the island, particularly in the remote west, where life had changed little since the famine, but this was not uniform across the island. The late 19th century saw technological advances change society. This modernisation impacted daily life for many in Ballyvadley, not least among them Bridget Cleary. For Bridget, the changes were symbolised by a state-of-the-art sewing machine she owned, which for her represented not only cutting-edge technology, but also social change. 
You see, in the late 1880s, Bridget had left Ballyvadley and moved to the nearby town of Clonmel, where she trained as a dressmaker. While she moved home after her training, this had given her economic independence, which would have been unthinkable for a woman only a few decades earlier. Her father would later say of her, she was able to give us, her parents, a good bit of money. However, while modern Ireland was slowly emerging, it wasn't a clean break with the past. Old ideas die hard and this was best seen in the superstitions and beliefs that played an important part of day-to-day life. In the last episode, we saw how fairy doctors or healers thought to have supernatural powers still held sway over the population in the late 19th century. Even in the 1890s, these superstitions, pagan in origin, that centred around a belief in the fairies were still surprisingly common. The fairies, or good people, as they were referred to, were considered to be magical beings that lived beneath the earth. The depth of belief varied from community to community, and also from person to person. Now, the most important of these beliefs in the story of Bridget Cleary was the concept of the changeling. It was often claimed that people with unexplained mental or physical illnesses were changelings. That was that the fairies had taken the true person and put one of their own in their place. Largely speaking, these strange and deeply traditional beliefs were generally pretty harmless. While they didn't do the sick much good, most thought it was very important not to harm a changeling. However, on occasion, these beliefs did have more sinister consequences. Indeed, Bridget Cleary herself must have been aware of a local case where a child accused of being a changeling had been killed. In her own native Tipperary, this had been the fate of Marianne Kelly. Marianne Kelly was born into a well-off family in the Tipperary town of Roscrae in 1844. Partially paralysed and suffering from mental illness, her mother consulted a certain Miss Peters, known locally as a fairy doctor, to cure her daughter's condition. Now Peters diagnosed young Marianne as being a changeling. The fairies, she had said, had abducted the real child. She had then set about supposedly saving Marianne by purging the changeling from her body. This involved giving the child large quantities of a tincture made from the flower foxglove. This was extremely poisonous, inducing chronic vomiting and diarrhoea. She gave further instructions that Marianne was to be stripped naked and left on a dunghill, that's a heap of animal excrement, after the tonic had been administered. Tragically, the trauma of the experience of foxglove poisoning and exposure killed the child. While the beliefs that led to these occasional acts of violence still persisted while Bridget Cleary was growing up, they were undoubtedly coming under sustained attack, not only from the changes sweeping through Irish society at the time, but also from the Catholic Church, which had been revitalised and reorganised by Cardinal Paul Cullen. After he took control of the Irish Church in the early 1850s, he not only tripled the number of priests, but also began to clamp down on what he regarded as ancient superstitions. Therefore, the world Bridget Cleary grew up in was one of great change and competing ideas. The future was uncertain, to say the least. Old traditions and superstitions, while still popular, were under threat. They now coexisted side by side in communities with modern ideas and an increasingly powerful Catholic Church. This proved a heady mix in Ballybadley. When Bridget had been training as a dressmaker in Clamell, she had met a seemingly quiet, unassuming man called Michael Cleary. Although he was older, a relationship between the two had developed. 
Michael had prospects. He was a skilled cooper, a person who made wooden barrels. In the 19th century, given wooden barrels were the equivalent of modern shipping containers, a cooper like Michael Cleary had no shortage of work. When the couple got married, Bridget was 21 years old and Michael nine years her senior. However, while they may have been economically secure, the couple's marriage did raise eyebrows in the community. It was certainly unorthodox for the time. Despite being married, they spent most of their time apart in the first few years. Bridget moved back to the cottage where her father lived in Ballyvadley, while Michael remained working in Clonmel. While it was only 15 miles away, theirs was a world with no cars or buses. This was too far to walk every day, and he only visited at weekends. Furthermore, Bridget, as we've seen, was financially independent, or at least not reliant on her husband for money, as were most women of the time, and this to an extent called into question her husband's position as head of the family. The unconventional nature of the Cleary's relationship continued for the six or so years they were together between 1889 and 1895. Even after Michael Cleary did move back to live in Ballyvadley, the couple did not have any children, which marked them as being slightly different in an era where most families had six or more kids. It's not known why they didn't have children, but this inevitably fueled rumours in Ballyvadley that both Michael and Bridget were having extramarital affairs. According to Bridget's cousin, Joanna, and her uncle, Richard, Michael Cleary had an affair in Clonmel, while there was also rumours that Bridget was seeing a man in Ballyvadley called William Simpson. There is no proof that the story of either affair was anything more than idle gossip. In spite of these difficulties and the rumours circulating about them, when people reflected back on their marriage, there was a consensus that Bridget and Michael did seem happy enough. However, all was not as it seemed and this became explicitly clear on the night of March 15th, 1895. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The dramatic events that would lead to the appearance of Bridget Cleary in international newspapers began in completely innocuous circumstances on March 4th, 1895. Bridget called to the house of a distant relative, her father's cousin, Jack Dunn, to sell eggs. On arriving at the Dunn household, Bridget found that there was no one home and she decided to hang on till someone arrived. But as she waited, she got caught in a heavy downpour of rain and was soaked thoroughly. Given it was only early March, she soon caught a cold. 
Unsurprisingly, in the following days, this developed into what was later diagnosed as, as bronchitis. In the following week, as Bridget took ill, she had several callers to the house, including Jack Dunn, the very man who she had travelled to sell the eggs to in the first place. Dunn, a man in his mid-fifties, was deeply superstitious, and he would prove a central figure in the events that now transpired. On seeing Bridget, Jack Dunn did not seem remotely sympathetic to her plight. Instead, he uttered fatal words the moment he saw her, when he said, That's not Bridgie Boland. Boland being Bridget's maiden name. While this sounds a strange but harmless statement, it had dire consequences for Bridget. Jack Dunn, as I said, was deeply superstitious, and he was now insinuating that Bridget Cleary was in fact a changeling. Her sickness, Dunn was claiming, could be explained by virtue of the fact that she had been taken by the fairies. While today Dunn's comment would be ignored, in 1895, in a community where superstitious ideas still held some traction, he had sowed the seed of an idea which would grow in the following weeks. In the coming days, Bridget's condition failed to improve and by March 9th, her husband Michael and her father, who lived with them, decided they needed to get a medical doctor. Her father walked to the nearby town of Feathered, but even though the doctor agreed to call on Bridget, he never turned up. Two days later, Michael Cleary, Bridget's husband, eager that she would receive medical attention, walked into Feathered to pressure the doctor into coming to see her. Despite his persistence, the doctor still failed to show. Eventually, on Wednesday the 13th, with Bridget still ill, Michael walked again to Feathered to try and get the doctor to finally come to the house. He also sent word for the local priest to visit on that day. On this occasion, his persistence paid off, with the doctor coming to visit Bridget that evening. While he noted Bridget was of a nervous disposition, he said she was only suffering from mild bronchitis. Similarly, the priest was not immediately concerned about her health. However, he made what would prove an ill-considered move when he administered the last rites to Bridget as a precautionary measure. Now, last rites, as the name suggests, is a rite Catholics receive on their deathbed. This added a needless sense of urgency to the matter. Bridget wasn't dying. No one thought she was. At this point, Michael Cleary, her husband, was beginning to appear in the record as a somewhat volatile character. His faith in the mainstream solutions of late 19th century Ireland, the medical doctor and the Catholic priest, were waning. And even before he returned from Feathered, where he had gone to pressure the doctor into coming to visit the house, he had already begun to seek alternative solutions. In Feathered, he had met a fairy doctor who had given him a remedy for Bridget. His doubts about the conventional wisdom of the priest and the doctor can only have been confirmed when he returned home that evening with the herbs. As the historian Angela Burke points out, the fact that the priest had administered last rites may have been interpreted by Michael Cleary as evidence that the priest was washing his hands of Bridget. This probably only reinforced in his mind that he needed other solutions. It was in this crucial moment that the superstitious Jack Dunn, who had already claimed that Bridget was a changeling, began to put pressure on Michael Cleary. He insisted that Cleary should seek the help of the local fairy doctor, a man called Dennis Ganny. On Thursday, March 14th, Michael Cleary did eventually go and see this man, Dennis Ganny. What the nature of the conversation that took place between the two men was is not clear, but Ganny an individual who would have had an incredibly superstitious outlook on life cannot have helped Michael Cleary think logically about his wife's illness.
When he returned home, he now had more herbs, which Ganni had told him to boil in milk and give to his wife. It appears by this stage, on Thursday, March 14th, Michael Cleary was convinced his wife was in fact a changeling, and this medicine that Ganni had given him would help her condition. The battle between old superstitions and more modern ideas was over, and superstition, in the case of Michael Cleary, had won out. The pressurised environment building in the Cleary household intensified further still when word arrived that same day that Michael Cleary's own father had died. Bridget Cleary was now in a highly dangerous situation with a volatile husband. Events began to take a turn for the worse on the evening of Thursday, March 14th. Michael Cleary, along with Bridget's father, Patrick, her aunt, two first cousins and three local men gathered in the house. What unfolded in the following hours was a horrific, violent and brutal ritual, fuelled by Michael Cleary's increasingly superstitious view of Bridget's illness. Cleary set about administering the unpleasant potion the fairy doctor Dennis Ganny had recommended for Bridget. Under Ganny's instruction, he had boiled certain herbs in milk, producing an unpleasant and bitter drink. Understandably, Bridget was reluctant to swallow the vile mixture, but when she resisted, Cleary began to force her violently. A hot poker, an item which according to the mythology the fairies hated, was brought from the fire to threaten her. He also used extremely violent language. Witnesses claimed they heard Michael Cleary shout and scream abuse at Bridget. They also saw Bridget pinned to the bed by two men, one of whom was her cousin. One held her arms while the other held her ears while she was forced to drink the concoction. In a highly degrading aspect of the ritual, every ten minutes or so, a horrific potion of urine, water and hen's excrement was thrown over her. This was supposedly going to help to drive the changing out of her body. The scene unfolding in the house was now a bizarre mix of pagan and Christian rituals. Michael Cleary paced around, making the sign of the cross while simultaneously making pagan charms to defend against the fairies. The ritual continued late into the evening, with Bridget continually being asked, Are you the daughter of Pat Boland? Alluding to the fact that those around her believed her to be a changeling. Then the ritual would adopt the Christian veneer, when they demanded she answer, in the name of God the Father and Holy Ghost. Bridget, sick as she was, could do nothing to satisfy her accusers. Even when she answered them, telling them what they wanted to hear, they only became increasingly aggressive. Michael Cleary repeatedly shook her, saying, Away with you, away with you, come home, Bridget Cleary, in the name of God. It was during this part of the ritual, reminiscent of a witch trial, that Jack Dunn, who emerges as a particularly sinister individual, said, Make a good fire and we'll make her answer. The implication clearly was that she would be tortured to make her give the answers they wanted. Bridget was then brought from the bedroom to the kitchen and she was held close to the fire in what seems to have been a threatening gesture rather than a direct assault. This continued for about ten minutes as they asked her again, Are you the daughter of Patrick Boland, wife of Michael Cleary? Answer in the name of God. In a tragic detail, she replied to her father, who was participating in these proceedings, I am Dada. She was asked numerous times and eventually removed and taken back to bed. The fire on this occasion appears to have been no more than a threat. 
While extremely traumatic for Bridget, she doesn't seem to have been physically burned on the Thursday evening and indeed by the end of the night it finally seemed her ordeal was coming to an end. Unsurprisingly, she was deeply distressed and started raving and her eyes rolled in her head. At this point, most of those present who had been participating or urging on proceedings were satisfied that the supposed changing had been banished. However, her husband, Michael, was not, as we shall see after this quick break. Before continuing, I want to mention some of the sources I used for today's show, and one in particular. While I spent a great deal of time trawling through international, national and local newspapers from 1895, the book The Burning of Bridget Cleary by Angela Burke was integral, and I feel it would be remiss not to mention it. It's an outstanding account of these events and also the background. So if you want to know more, check it out. That's The Burning of Bridget Cleary by Angela Burke. It's available on Amazon. If you have access to academic sources, there is a much shorter article by Thomas McGrath in the journal Studies and Irish Quarterly Review from 1982 that gives a good synopsis of the events as well. Now, back to the story. After the violent assault he had carried out on Bridget, Michael Cleary was still acting strangely and claiming she was a changeling. At 7am the following morning he sent for the local priest, asking him to say Mass in the house, which took place that morning. Cleary believed that this would banish the supposed demon. The priest later said that Bridget was more nervous that morning, but apparently saw no sign that she had been burned the night before. When the priest asked Michael Cleary about the medicines the medical doctor had recommended, he revealed his views on the case at this point when he replied he didn't have faith in such medicines. Michael Cleary at this point was unbalanced and dangerous. To make the situation worse, he presumably had not slept much the previous night. He began insisting that Bridget drink holy water, that's water blessed by a priest. Later on the evening of Friday the 15th of March, Bridget Cleary's final hours alive. She was dressed and came downstairs to where her neighbours were gathered again in the house. The topic of the supernatural and fairies naturally arose in conversation, but Bridget, by this stage, was extremely tired and grew irritated by the conversation. Eventually she rebuked Michael Cleary, who in reaction grew increasingly violent towards her again. When Bridget was offered a cup of tea, he demanded she partake in a bizarre ritual whereby she eat three slices of bread and on each occasion answer a question as to whether she was his husband and therefore not a changeling. She did this twice but refused on the third time. This reaction is pretty understandable. She was just sick and tired of the entire charade, having been repeatedly humiliated by her relatives and family. Unhinged, Michael Cleary reacted extremely aggressively. He flung Bridget to the floor and pinned her down, putting his knee to her chest and began forcing the food into her. He then continued with his assault. He ripped off her outer clothing, brandishing a piece of wood from a fire and kneeling on her. Bridget, weakened as she was by her illness, apparently ushered the words, Give me one more chance. Tragically, she wouldn't receive one. In the kerfuffle, the flame Cleary was brandishing touched the calico chemise Bridget was wearing, which quickly caught fire. However, this appears to have been intentional on Cleary's part because next he moved the proceedings to a whole new level of brutality. 
Rather than extinguishing Bridget Cleary's burning clothes, he grabbed a paraffin lamp near him and emptied the highly flammable oil all over his wife. Bridget had no hope. She quickly caught fire and was consumed in a ball of flames. The situation in the house was chaotic, given there were several people in the room. While they stood by and watched Michael Cleary abuse his wife, they tried to intervene now. However, Michael Cleary resisted and claimed he was exercising a demon and shouted at Bridget's cousin, Hold your tongue, Hannah. It's not Bridget I am burning. You will soon see her. That's the changeling. Go up the chimney. Tragically, no one could get to Bridget and she died there in her own kitchen. After some time, things settled down somewhat and Cleary and another man he forced to help him buried her body. While numerous people had been present in the house, none immediately went to the police. This was not surprising though. In Ireland in the 1890s there was a deep resentment and distrust of the police. Cleary's superstition did not end with Bridget's death. After he buried her, he and Jack Dunn would spend much of the following days at an ancient ring fort near where Dennis Ganny, the fairy doctor, lived, claiming at least that he believed that the real Bridget would appear riding a white horse. Meanwhile, rumours of what happened began to circulate through Ballyvadley. Eventually, one of those present, Bridget's cousin, Hannah Burke, did go to the police. She, however, would not give the full story and only said that Bridget had disappeared from her house. However, she, or local rumours at least, made the police suspicious. They arrested everyone who had been present and the fairy doctor, Dennis Ganny, and held them while they initiated a search for Bridget. On March the 22nd, a week after she had died, they found her remains behind her house, and not long afterwards, several of the people were charged. Many were let go. For example, there was no case against the fairy doctor, Dennis Ganny. He had never even been to the Cleary house. Michael Cleary was eventually convicted of manslaughter and received 20 years hard labour, while Jack Dunn received three years. For me, one of the most tragic aspects of what happened to Bridget was her burial. Even in death, Bridget Cleary was treated terribly by the community she had been born and raised in. With her father and close relatives in prison awaiting trial for her murder, her community boycotted her funeral and not a soul attended. Even the local clergy did not participate, a fate usually reserved for the most detested members of a community. It fell to a few policemen using a common cart to haul her body to bury her. Before I finish, I want to look a bit more at why this happened to Bridget Cleary. It was very rare in 19th century Ireland for rituals like this to end in death. Bridget may have been targeted for lots of reasons. She certainly stood out in her community. She was a success in terms of being a dressmaker and financially independent. Furthermore, her unorthodox relationship with her husband probably set her apart. However, she lived in a society where life was conservative and very, very communal in nature. If people perceived Bridget to be getting what they would have regarded above herself or thought her better than her neighbours, they may well have been happy to see her publicly humiliated by her husband. This would certainly explain why even her cousins allowed Michael to treat her so brutally on the night of March the 14th. That's the night before she was murdered. They may well not have thought it would ever result in death, but, as I say, were happy to go along with her humiliation. All that said, though, we cannot dismiss the issue of superstition and the role it played. The older, superstitious man, Jack Dunn, was clearly an instigator of sorts. 
He had badgered Michael Cleary to seek the opinion of the fairy doctor. He was present for all the attacks on Bridget, and indeed afterwards he went with Michael Cleary to the ancient fort where they waited for Bridget, supposedly to return from the dead. The extent of what any of these individuals exactly believed is always difficult to ascertain, but as Angela Burke, the historian, has pointed out, undoubtedly a man like Dunn, a generation older than Bridget and Michael Cleary, would have resented the modernisation of society where the superstitious ideas he held dear were increasingly viewed with scepticism and disregard. Perhaps he saw an independent woman like Bridget as symbolic of that change and saw this as a chance to strike back. Finally, we come to the killer himself, Michael Cleary. While we will not know his true motives, I would be very slow to say he was insane or anything like that. Even today, gendered violence is common and the court pages of our newspapers rarely pass a week without a story of husbands beating their wives. The same was true in the 19th century. So the idea that Michael Cleary could be sane and perpetuate a violent, brutal and fatal assault on his wife is not contradictory. He may have seen Bridget as some sort of threat to his stature. Ireland in the late 19th century was more patriarchal than it is today. Cleary may have felt somewhat undermined by Bridget's success, her independence and the rumour of her affair, regardless of whether it had any basis in reality. These may well have influenced the ferocity of the attack on Bridget and fed into the wider context of the superstitions building in the house after she got sick in early March. Whatever the exact motivations, as I say, we'll never know. However, while a belief in the fairies persisted in Ireland into the later 20th century, Bridget Cleary was the last to die as a result of these superstitions. That's it for this episode, folks. Until next time, Sloan. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.